roar listening to you guys from my office. It was nice. It was nice. Hey, we're in John chapter 13, continuing our study through the Gospel of John. Heavenly Father, I pray as we go through this study this morning that your Spirit would just speak to us in a profound and powerful way in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 13 begins a section of Scripture in in the Gospel of John that is called the Upper Room Discourse. Jesus and his disciples have gathered together in an upper room, and there uh, they are going to celebrate um, Passover, uh, what we now know as the Lord's Supper in this upper room. And so it was a very intimate time, very powerful spiritual time with regards to any Jew, but particularly so here This was important for Jesus because this was the last time that he would be able to spend uninterrupted with his disciples before he was betrayed, turned over to the Jews and then to the Romans and ultimately to die upon the cross. So just stop and think about that for a moment. If you were with those people that you loved the most, that had been with you, through the most difficult times of your life, and you knew you were about to die, what would you share with them? What would you talk about with them? I assume it would be some of the most important things that you had on your heart, wouldn't it? And I believe that's what happens here in the Upper Room Discourse. Jesus is sharing things about love, about the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit about the nature of true ministry with these men. And the passage that we're going to go through here this morning, the first 17 verses of John chapter 13, um, includes all the 12, including Judas. Judas is present during this time. And, And I've titled my message this morning, the heart of a servant, and really when I, what I want to get at here this morning for each of us is to extrapolate a little bit from this passage what it means to truly serve other people, and specifically to serve in the body of Christ, because the context here is within the body of Christ, specifically. So let's read through it. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress. And the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So Jesus knew all of these things. There was no uncertainty that was filling his heart at this moment. He understood what was happening. And with that understanding, it says, he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you don't realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, 
said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Well, then Lord Simon Peter replied, not just my feet only, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean and you are clean, though not every one of you, for he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he had said not every one was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now, if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set for you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. I want to jump back to the Gospel of Luke to set a little bit of the tone for this event. In Luke chapter 22, we're, we're also reading about the Last Supper and what's going on at the Last Supper. And in Luke chapter 22, I'm just going to read beginning in verse 20 because it sort of sets the, the somberness or the seriousness of, of, of the, the event. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed. But woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. So Jesus has just shared probably the most difficult thing that he could possibly share with him. He is going to die for their sin. He is going to be betrayed by one of them. And right then, in the midst of his sharing of that deep, difficult issue, a dispute arose among them as to which was considered to be the greatest. Now, I don't know about you, but that just sort of strikes me as peculiar. Now, if someone that you really love is with you and they're telling you some, their, their deepest, most intense concern, it, doesn't it seem odd that you would shift into a discussion about, yeah, but I want to know who's the greatest among us. You know, yeah, you're going to die, Lord, but really, who's the greatest? Who's the chief among us? And that's the discussion. That's the setting. That's the tone that Jesus arises from the table and begins to wash their feet. He understands. He, he, he's watching what's going on with the disciples, this discussion, this debate about who's the greatest. And in the midst of that, he disrobes. And he sets to, about to wash their feet. The fact is that perhaps their discussion about who was the greatest was inaugurated by a debate over who was going to wash each other's feet because it was common at Jewish meals that there would be a servant, one assigned to wash the feet of all of the guests because they walked with sandals and the roads were dusty. Sometimes they were muddy. Almost invariably, people would enter into a home with dirty feet. 
And so it was quite common for a servant to be assigned the task of washing the feet of those who entered for the meal. Can't you just see it? Thomas says, I'm not going to wash Peter's feet. Peter says, well, why should I have to wash John's feet? His are always the stinkiest. And they get into the discussion about what they have done, what they have seen. Because remember, by this point, they have been out in ministry. They have performed miracles. Jesus has empowered them. A lot of things have happened. And obviously, a degree of pride has filled their heart. Now, Jesus understood who he was dealing with. He knew the people who were with him. He knew that among the twelve there was a betrayer. He knew among the twelve was a denier. He knew among the twelve was a doubter. And he knew that all of the twelve would be deserters. This was not hidden from his sight. He knew what was going on among the twelve. But listen to what he said. And, and it's the same way with us, church. It's exactly the same way with us. He knows your life. He knows the darkness that you struggle with. Even today as a believer, we came to the, the, the table of the Lord and I, and I, I, I counseled you to come in a fashion that was worthy of the table of the Lord. And that's one reason why we continue to come to the table, to address the mercy and the grace that God extends to us, because we all continue to struggle with that. So did these guys. These were not a group of 12 perfect apostles, and Jesus knew it. Jesus' response to the, their discussion about who was the greatest in Luke chapter 22 is to say that the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules as the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. And this is, I believe, where Jesus stood up and began to wash their feet. Now listen to what he says to this group of doubters, deniers, deserters. Listen to what he says to them. You are the ones who have stood by me in my trials. What? They're all going to flee. They're all going to leave him alone tonight. But this is what he says. You are the one, ones who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. See, Jesus knows who we are. He sees our flaws. He understands our struggles. He knows what you're dealing with. But he looks beyond those things to what he is going to make of your life. Who you are going to become as you humble yourself and rely upon his power. And that's what we're going to talk about. So he knows who he's dealing with here. He's not dealing with the elite 
He's dealing with a bunch of doofuses. And yet, he disrobes and begins to wash their feet as a servant. How can he do that? How is Jesus able to humble himself and to serve in such a base fashion? The lowest of the low, typically, were the ones who were assigned to the foot-washing duty. Well, there's two keys. Two keys, and I think this is important for each one of us because in the context of the body of Christ, this is what we must do. The first key to having the heart of a servant is love. It's love. Down in verse 34 in John chapter 13, Jesus says, A new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know. So the whole world, by your love for one another, will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So if we are going to have the heart of a servant, we must have a heart filled with God's love. There's no other way. There's no other way for you to truly say that you are a disciple of Jesus Christ unless you convey His love to one another. We can't do that in our flesh. Our flesh is so self-focused, so self-centered, we only want to debate about why we are the greatest. That's what our flesh does. But when the Holy Spirit comes into us, when that promise from on high fills us and we become new creatures in Christ, there is a new dynamic at play. The Holy Spirit empowers us. And what is the fruit of the Holy Spirit? What does Paul say in Galatians chapter 5 that the fruit of the Holy Spirit is? What is the first word given? Love. That's the character of the Holy Spirit. It's love. And so if we allow the Holy Spirit within us to exude itself within the context of the body of Christ, love comes out. Now, I want to say this to you. The church is not perfect. When we come together, we are made up of all different kinds of people, all different kinds of backgrounds, all different kinds of experiences. And God knew that would be the case when he called the church together. It's a laboratory for love to be practiced. That's what the church is. It's not a gathering of perfect people. It's a gathering of people who debate who's the greatest. Why does that group do that? Why does that group do this? I can't believe she's doing that again. I'm just going to go out into the mountains and worship. That's where I really connect with God. You might connect with God, but you're not going to be able to practice love out in the mountains. Not as well as in the church. Because you know what? As I said, the church is made up of all different kinds of people. There are babes in Christ. People who are just coming to the faith who don't know the first thing about Jesus Christ other than He saved them. They've got to learn. Just like a newborn babe has to learn. There are people who are growing 
And they're learning new things, and they're trying them out. They're getting on the bicycle, and the, the training wheels have been removed, and they're crashing. And we're like, really? You know, maybe you need the training wheels on for a little bit longer. There are people who have walked with God for a long time, but they've backslidden. They're doing things they ought not to do. How do we deal with that in the body of Christ? How do we deal with newborn babes, with people who are growing and trying out new things, with people who have slidden back into the world? We deal with love. Love covers a multitude of sins, the Bible says. Now, love expressed is beautiful. It's a wonderful thing to see. All too often, we don't exhibit it in the church. And the world rightly looks at the church and says, a bunch of hypocrites. But they don't understand the whole story. They don't understand that we are growing. We are in this laboratory. And there are some experiments that go well and some that blow up in our face. So we have to love in order to have the heart of a servant. And this body of believers, this group that comes together, all different kinds of people, is where God has called us to learn love. Second thing that comes, that must come in our lives in order for us to have the, the heart of a servant, and that's humility. Humility. Humility was practiced by God. Jesus, it says in Philippians chapter 2, humbled himself, emptying himself of all of his prerogatives as God, taking upon himself the form of a servant. Not only that, Paul writes, but he did that unto the point of death, even death on a cross, the most humiliating death possible. God humbled himself. God practiced humility. God also honors humility. The Bible says that God is opposed to the proud, but that he gives grace to the humble. And if we humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God, he will at the proper time exalt us. So humility was practiced by God, but it is also honored by God. So humility is a state into which we must, as Christians, step. We must practice, take on, clothe ourselves with humility. How do we do that? How do you clothe yourself with humility? Well, I want to start off by reading a scripture out of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12. It says, if you think you are standing firm, be careful, lest you fall. So the first step to humility is to take heed, to recognize that you might be doing well today, but tomorrow it may be a way different story. We all need to acknowledge that we stumble and fall in many ways. And that's the second aspect to taking on humility. It's a recognition of our sin. It says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, 
that we are to confess our sins unto God, and he will be faithful and just to forgive us. Now, that's not to say that we have to be uh, saved every time we sin. No, we're saved, we're in Christ, but we continue to sin occasionally. When we sin, John says we are to confess our sin unto God and he will be faithful and just to forgive us. Why does he call us to do that? I believe that confession leads us to focus on the cross. Every time I blow it and I confess my sin, I see the cross. I see the blood shed on my behalf. It leads me to a recognition and an understanding of the grace that is necessary in my life. And as I confess, as I look to the cross, as grace becomes a continual, repetitive experience in my life, guess what happens? I'm set free. I'm set free. Because I know that it's by God's power and His power only that I stand. So we have to have love in order to have the heart of a servant. We have to have humility in order to have the heart of a servant. When we are humble, when we humble ourselves before the Lord, we, that leads us into obedience. Look what it says there in, in verse 10. After Peter has been told that Jesus must wash his feet. Or excuse me, verse 7. Jesus said to him, You don't realize now, Peter, what I'm doing, but later you will understand. That humility ultimately will lead Peter to the point of saying, Lord, not my feet only, but my head and my body also. It leads us into obedience to God. When we are humble, we are in a position to obey God's direction. When we obey God's directions, look what happens there in verse 7. When we do what he has told us to do, revelation follows. If you do this, Peter, you, don't, you won't understand it now, but as you do it, later you will have revelation. And as we humble ourselves, we step into obedience, we receive a revelation from God. God speaks to us. He communicates to us. It's an open door into a deeper relationship with God. So, love and humility. Now, I want to conclude with this. It's in verse 17. And it's a powerful, powerful uh, thought if you get it. I hope you get it because it's powerful. Jesus said at the conclusion of all of this, he said, now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. So the word there, blessed, it's a Greek word, makarios, which means happy or fulfilled, deeply satisfied or at peace. So let me ask you this question. Are you depressed? Are you struggling with depression? How about discouragement? Do you find yourself despondent over 
the circumstances of your life. Well then, put love in action. Build in your life the heart of a servant. And you will be blessed. That's what Jesus promises here. Now, for those of you who have known Jesus for any amount of time, have you ever experienced Jesus to lie to you? Of course not. Jesus doesn't lie. He's God. Do you think he's telling the truth here? That we will be blessed if we put our faith into action. If we love one another and serve one another in love. Jesus says you will be happy. You will be fulfilled. You will be satisfied and at peace. If you do these things, imagine, just imagine a church setting where people are rushing to get to the back of the line. Where people aren't looking at one another and saying, boy, did you blow it again. But they're rushing to the person whose feet are dirty and saying, how can I serve you? How can I love you? How can I take care of you? See, the washing of the, the, the feet, the water, that is symbolic. It's symbolic of the Word of God. It says in Ephesians chapter 5 that husbands are to wash their wives with the water of the Word. Jesus said in John 15, 3, that he has washed the disciples with his word. He has sanctified or set them apart with his word. It is the word of God that we speak to one another that cleanses each of us. So, imagine a church setting where the word of God is being spoken to those who are struggling. Where people who have a deep need, whatever that need may be, are not ostracized, but they're embraced. This is what it all boils down to, and I'll conclude with this. It's what I call basin theology. Like a little water basin. Basin theology. When Jesus stood before Pilate. Pilate asked for a, a basin of water to be brought to him, and he washed his hands. Washed his hands of Jesus. He said, I have nothing to do with this. You deal with it. And he walked away. There's another basin, though. The basin that Jesus took where he washed his disciples' feet. Which basin of water are you going to apply to your interactions with other people? Heavenly Father, thank you for the promise of your word. Thank you for the assurance that we have of the Holy Spirit within us. And I pray for each one of us, Lord, myself first and foremost, that you would fill me with the love of the Holy Spirit and that you would clothe me with humility, that I might serve others in the same fashion, Lord, that you have done. 
take this congregation of saints, Lord, and make us just as you did with that motley crew in the upper room, a people of faith. A people quick to take the basin to wash one another's feet. In Jesus' name, amen.